All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. We're looking at the baptism of the king. We are moving verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew. And as it, as the Lord would have it, we are looking at the baptism of Jesus. And we just had a wonderful experience of baptism here. So we're excited about that. So let's turn over to Matthew chapter 3. The verses are 13 through 17. Let me get turn to it as well. And if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew 3, 13. It reads this way. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Verse 15. Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Father, thank you for... Your living word, thank you for this monumental moment in redemption history. Thank you that you so loved the world that you gave. You sent your only son and he was pleasing in your sight. He always did those things that please you. Thank you that this idea of fulfilling all righteousness ties directly to the gospel and we need to understand it and rejoice in it. So would you help us? Would you give us insight into the text? Would you help us to see the glory of the gospel, the glory of our great king? Help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand and respond to this uh, truth in the way you'd have us to respond. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. You can have a seat. The baptism of the king. So we, as we've introduced the gospel of Matthew, we've talked about the, the bigger theme being the kingdom of God or the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus' baptism prepared the nation for Christ, or I should say John's baptism prepared the nation for Christ, but also presented Christ to the nation. Uh, one of the big ideas of baptism, when someone gets baptized in a Christian church like this, is the idea of identification. When one goes into the waters of baptism, they're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's a picture of being in Christ. It's a picture of oneness with Christ. The water doesn't save us. I think we all know that. We could all get into a tank of water. We could be dunked a hundred times, a thousand times, and it would be insufficient to do anything in our spirit. But once something has happened within us, baptism becomes a picture. We often say it's an outward picture of an inward change or an inward Reality. Baptism is a picture of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And of course, the water has uh, great symbolism to the cleansing effect of the blood of Jesus in our lives. That when we receive Christ, his perfect life, sacrificial death, triumphant resurrection gets applied to us. And that's the idea of the identification of Christ. And so the, the opening verse reads this way. It says, then Jesus arrived. I'm reading from the New American Standard. I think many of the other translations say he came. Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. That's Matthew 3.13. The monumental moment came. Jesus arrived. And I want that to sit before us just for a second because Jesus did say that the Father sent him. He said that he laid down his life of his own initiative, no one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. He had the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. And so as Jesus arrives at the Jordan River, he has come uh, obedient to the Father. He has come in fulfillment of God's plan, God's plan of salvation. And so there is purpose behind the statement, Jesus arrived came to John to be baptized. It indicates a sense of purpose, says one writer, and what's going to unfold, of course, around the baptism of Jesus, but he was on mission. He had come, Luke 19, 10, to seek and to save that which was lost. 
John 18, 37, he had come to bear witness to the truth. He had come to lay down his life for his friends. And he had come to do the will of his father. This phrase, to fulfill all righteousness, is one that we will dig out as we study this. And we'll ask some questions. And this has raised some questions in the minds of the early church. And I think anybody who studies the Bible all the way up to this time, why would Jesus need to be baptized? If John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism, was a baptism of repentance, preparing the hearts of the people for the Messiah, and if Jesus is indeed the Messiah, why would he come for water baptism? If water baptism is a sign of repentance, a sign of humility, we're going to talk about that in a second. Let's talk about the location for a moment. You can see that Jesus arrived. He came from Galilee. We all uh, have learned, I think, in the past, most of us know this, that Jesus grew up in the Galilee region, namely the place called Nazareth. And that was prophesied about him as we learned earlier. And so he lived up in the northern area of Israel. And that northern area of Israel is very green and lush. Uh, you, when you move to the, to the south of Israel, like the area of Jerusalem, it's more desert. You go up to the north near the Syrian border, and it's very green. And down from Mount Hermon, waters flow down into the land of Israel. There's a lot of streams, a lot of green places there. And the Jordan River begins really in the northern part of Israel, or into the Sea of Galilee, and then flowing out all the way down to the Dead Sea. So Jesus lived around the Sea of Galilee, and he did the multitude of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. But when he comes to be baptized, he doesn't go into that ocean or that lake, which is a freshwater body of water. And if you've ever been to Israel, it's a very pleasant place. The Sea of Galilee would be my choice for baptism because the Jordan River is dirty, unimpressive, narrow at a lot of its place, places. In fact, when you go to Israel, when you see the Jordan, you're kind of like, oh, <laughs> wow, that's the Jordan River? And of course, it's wider and more impressive when it's at its flood stage. But Jesus came probably 70 plus miles from his hometown of Nazareth into the area uh, where John was baptizing. And he came for a specific purpose. The Jordan, if you look up Jordan in your uh, lexicons or to get a definition, the name Jordan or the Jordan River means descender. We can think of it descending down the country here, but you can see, I think, the uh, application to our text. Jesus descended from heaven to earth. The Holy Spirit will descend on him uh, after his baptism. God the Son descended from heaven to earth. And so it is interesting that the name Jordan means descender. John uh, 3, 12 and 13, Jesus said to Nicodemus, I told, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. So Jesus was the preexistent God the Son. God became a human. God came down. God became one of us. And it's interesting that the name Jordan means descender. In Matthew's gospel, here's what we've seen so far. We've seen Jesus' genealogy. We've seen him born, the virgin birth. We've seen the appearance of the wise men as they uh, come and seek him out. And then we see a warning given to Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father, take the child into Egypt because Herod had a murderous plot. Herod was planning on destroying him. So Joseph, in a dream, got that word from God and took Jesus, the baby Jesus, or the little boy Jesus, and his mother into the land of Egypt. Jesus was identifying with the people of Israel because they had gone into the land of Egypt during a famine. When Herod had died and those who were threatening Jesus' life, Jesus made his own exodus from Egypt back into the promised land. He was a little boy at this time. And then in Matthew's gospel, Jesus does not appear again until he's an adult. Luke tells us he was about 30 years of age when he began his public ministry. So we don't have really anything else in Matthew's gospel. We go from him coming back from Egypt into the promised land and now as an adult making an appearance at the Jordan River. And one thing that we need to understand, and I've 
laid this out to you before, is that Jesus is retracing the fallen footsteps of Israel. He goes into the land of Egypt. He goes back into the promised land. He comes to the Jordan. Remember that Israel, when they left the land of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea. And 1 Corinthians 10.2 says they were baptized into Moses. And when they got to the other side of the sea, they sang and they rejoiced, but it didn't take long until they started crying and whining. Some of us can relate to that. Some of us can relate to that with kids on a long trip or whatever it may be. On to the other side of the sea, God destroyed the entire Egyptian army, drowned them in the sea. They sang for a while, but then there was no water. Then they complained about the the food choices. And after Jesus is baptized, what does he do? He immediately is impelled by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he spends 40 days and 40 nights there facing temptation by the devil. Retracing, I hope you can see it, the fallen footsteps of Israel. Because as they wandered in the desert and were tempted by Satan, what did they show? They showed that they were an obstinate people. Jesus always did those things that pleased the Father, but God's declaration of Israel is that they're a stubborn people. They're an obstinate people. They did not keep the essence of the covenant. The law summed up in two commands, to love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And Israel fell on their face. They failed. And Jesus is the greater Israel. Some of you are familiar with the servant songs, the prophecy, uh, prophecies of the coming ultimate Israel. His name is Messiah. His name is Jesus. And all of this is intentional. All of this is to fulfill a specific purpose where Jesus will succeed where Israel has failed. And so through the waters of baptism and then into the wilderness and at the waters of baptism, the father declares, this is my beloved son. And the devil will say, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, this is the clashing and Jesus will be hungry because he doesn't eat and he's retracing their steps to fulfill where they have failed. This is the gospel, by the way. The gospel means that Jesus did not only just die and resurrect for you, he lived a perfect life for you. Technically speaking, and John MacArthur brought this out in one of his messages, God only needed a weekend from Jesus. Think about it. If Jesus died on a Friday and rose on a Sunday, that's all God needed. So why couldn't the son have just entered in as a fully grown human and died on the cross, and resurrected from the dead, and we'd be done with it. Why 33 years on the earth? Why born as a baby? Why did he have to go through all the human stuff? Why did he have to grow up like that, and be tired, and experience betrayal, and human weakness? Why? Because he was identifying with us. Because he loves us. Amen? And when you go to your great high priest, he can relate to you because God is compassionate first and foremost, but second of all, Jesus is the God-man, and when you pray to him, he knows what it's like to be human because he is. He's 100% God and 100% man. And our great high priest sympathizes with us. Now, he was without sin. We know his perfect life is part of the gospel, but the point is this, that he did it for us, and he did it to relate to us, and you could call this, if you're taking notes an Exodus picture. Jesus retracing the footsteps of the Exodus to bear the curse for us, to succeed where they failed. Now, there is another interesting fact, and I want you to turn to John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just for a moment. John chapter one, all four gospels record the baptism of Jesus and look at it from some different angles. John the Baptist, of course, was the one baptizing. He was the herald of the Messiah, And I want to bring out a little bit more about the location just for a moment. John's gospel, John chapter one, the leaders, verse 25, were asking John about himself. Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ? You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. John 1, 26, John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan 
where John was baptizing. Now in John 1.28, we have what's called a variant reading in the manuscripts. The received text, which is really what has inspired the King James and the New King James Version, say the location was Beit Tabara. It's Beth, if you're taking notes. And if you have the New King James, you already have it. It's B-E-T-H and A and then Bara, B-A-R-A. Scholars say that the, that term, Bethabara, means something like fairy house or it can mean crossing place. And when you dig this out a little bit more with the variant manuscript reading, the, there's no Bethany that we know of outside of the house of uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, which was about five miles outside of Jerusalem and more uh, inland. So what is this place? Was there a different Bethany or is Bethabara the more accurate location? Well, interestingly enough, when you, when you look at this a little bit more, scholars have concluded that Bethabara is up on the east side of the Jordan opposite Jericho. And Jericho was the first city that the Israelites had to conquer after they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. We know the first generation died off, but Caleb and Joshua went in, etc. And it may well be, and this would be a further uh, affirmation of Jesus retracing their fallen footsteps, that Jesus was baptized where the Israelites crossed into the promised land. And when they crossed, we know that they did what God did and they took Jericho, but then Ai, they got <laughs> beat up and we know the rest of the story. They didn't do everything that God had called them to do and the nation you know, uh, had their bumps and bruises. Jesus may well have been baptized where they crossed the river and that may well, well be why he went all that distance, why he came to John. And of course, this was all part of God's plan that Jesus would identify with us, that he would be baptized in the Jordan. John goes on to say, it says the next day, John 1, he saw Jesus coming to him. And what did he say? Behold, famously, the Lamb of God. This is the purpose who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on, on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who is, has a higher rank than I. He existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, I've seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And so Jesus' mission as he approaches the Jordan is clear. The Lamb of God who takes away your sin and my sin. Back to Matthew, if you would. And so Jesus has come to the Jordan he has come for baptism, and he came to John. And when he came, John knew who he was. John didn't know everything about him, but he knew who he was. And John, Matthew 3, 14, tried to prevent Jesus. And he said, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now, we do baptisms fairly regularly here at Living Truth, and here's what we do. We say, hey, if you want to be baptized, you've never been baptized, you should be baptized in honor of the Great Commission, call the church office and talk to Pastor John. Can you imagine this phone call? Uh, I'm calling about baptism today. Uh, can I have your name? Yeah, I'd like to talk to Pastor John. My name is Jesus. Oh, how long have you been coming to Living Truth? Uh, well, I am Living Truth, but that's a, a different... Can I talk to him? Yeah, so Pastor John gets on the phone. So you'd like to be baptized. Tell me a little bit about you. Well, I'm Jesus uh, of Nazareth. Uh, <laughs> God, can you imagine? I'd like to set up the baptism. I mean, that'd be a little bit intimidating. Or let's say that we were doing baptisms here and Jesus walked down the center aisle and said, baptize me. And we knew who he was. It'd be a bit Intimidating. It would seem weird. Why would I ever baptize you? You need to baptize me. And John had made a distinction between his baptism in Matthew 3.11 and Jesus's. Take a look. As for me, Matthew 3.11, I baptized you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. 
We might say, I'm not fit to untie his shoes. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Maybe John is saying something like this. I need the baptism that you offer. I am baptizing in water for repentance to prepare the nation, but you are bringing a spirit baptism, which I need desperately. Amen? We all do. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We did a men's breakfast yesterday. Brother Sherman spoke to us. And he was speaking about the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. We cannot do this without God's power. And so there's Jesus. Uh, Matthew's gospel is the only gospel that records this conversation between John and Jesus. And John was saying, you know, I don't think this should happen. And Jesus was saying, no, you're going to baptize me. This is why I came. I've come to be part of the people's experience to come and identify with them. And Jesus said to him, permit it, verse 15, at this time, you could say it this way, now this is how things should be, for it is fitting, or in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. The word righteousness in verse 15 is a word which means what is required, what ought to be done, what is right, and true. It also indicates the behavior expected in the people of God. Jesus will say in chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And this has become somewhat of a mystery in the minds of many who dive into scripture. What is actually going on here? And what does Jesus mean to fulfill all righteousness? Well, Jesus said I, in Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so this is something that we need to understand that Jesus came on a mission of fulfillment. He came to do for us what we have failed to do. He came to fulfill the law. When Israel made that covenant at Mount Sinai, they said, everything that you say that God has said through you, Moses, we will do. And the blood was sprinkled on the people, but they did not keep that covenant. They failed. They did not fulfill their word. And I would submit to you that this is a room full of people who have had similar experiences. As much as we have good intentions, as much as we, you know, see the truth and we want to live the truth, we failed probably more times than we'd like to admit. Some of us have had decades where we were in total rebellion to God. And even as believers, we know we don't always hit the mark. And sometimes we just simply transgress. We know better and we still do the wrong thing. We are not perfectly righteous. And if we stand before God in our own righteousness on that day, on the day of judgment, how do you think your righteousness will measure up? Isaiah 64, or in the book of Isaiah, tells us clearly our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. We just haven't hit the mark. We fall short of his holiness. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. Jesus has come in God's divine plan to fulfill where we have failed. And this was the right moment for him to identify with us in the waters of baptism. Let's face it, to get baptized takes, it's a step of humility. To get into a tub of water, to some of you to go out into an ocean or a swimming pool and to be dunked in water before a group of people and essentially what you're saying is I need Jesus and I'm going to publicly profess that I'm a sinner saved by grace and I'm going to follow him all the days of my life. That's an act of humility. That, that's a step in the early church. In fact, it was the step in my understanding of church history that identified you with the people of God was your baptism. It was the time when you gave your main public testimony was at a baptism, not necessarily at an altar call in the early church, but at a baptism. It was a way that you identified with Christ and his people. And if you flip it around, this is what Jesus is doing. He's identifying with God's people. He's identifying with John. He's affirming John's baptism, but 
He's also affirming his solidarity, not only with John, but with us. Isaiah 53, 11 puts it this way. My servant will justify the many. He shall make many to be accounted as righteous because he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53, 11. Moses went out to his people, Hebrews eleven twenty five. He left the treasures of Egypt to be identified with the people of God. Why? Because that was his call. And Jesus is the greater Moses and he goes out to us at the waters of baptism where everybody is confessing that they've fallen short of the glory of God and he identifies with the people. He basically says, I love you and I've come for you and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through baptism myself, not because I need it, not because I need to repent of anything, but because I want you to know that I'm with you. I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that I've come on a saving mission to live the perfect life that you could never live. Spurgeon puts it this way, baptism beautifully set forth our Lord's immersion in our suffering. His burial and resurrection show the triumph of our great God. Jesus entered into our pain. That's why he's at those waters. He doesn't need to repent of anything. He was without sin. He was perfect. Yet he condescends. He became a baby like one of us. He was an adolescent like us. He went through the uh, humanity like us and he goes into the water of baptism like us. And I gave you the Exodus picture as well that he follows those fallen footsteps, etc. He's come to identify with his people. He loves us. One of the great ways that we can live as believers is to enter into people's pain. We can stand with them through thick and thin. We, we need to do just that and be like Christ. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, verse 16. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he, I think that's John here, saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. Now, after Jesus was baptized, and I'm assuming that he went fully immersed into the water, he came up out of the water, and all of a sudden the word behold is like, look. The heavens were opened and the Spirit of God descended as a dove and came upon him. The heavens being opened is a beautiful picture of heaven's heart towards us. You know, heaven is open to you. The heavens have opened to you in the coming of Christ. Sometimes people say, is there a God? And if there's a God, why doesn't he speak? Why doesn't he come down and say something? Why doesn't he open up the heavens and spoke? Oh, he has. God became one of us. There was an old song that said, what if God were one of us? Not a very reverent song, but I think that's what they were after. And the truth of the matter is that God did become one of us in the person of Christ. He dwelt among us. Heaven came down. And he didn't come down just to correct us, although he did speak truth. He came down to die for us, to identify with us. This is our God. In Luke's gospel, it says that after Jesus was baptized, it says while he was praying, Luke 3.21, if you're taking notes, Heaven was open. If you wondered what Jesus was doing at that moment, Luke gives us the additional insight that when he came up out of the water, he was praying and the heavens were opened. On an application point, can I submit to you that if we want to see the heavens opened more, we ought to pray more. Amen? If we want to see the heavens open to us, we should be people of prayer. And I know that could be a struggle for all of us, but here's something that I would suggest. Take a look at your prayer priorities during the week. If you were to submit your prayer list to God at the end of this next week, what would your prayers look like? Are you praying that the heavens would open, that people would hear the truth of the gospel? Are your prayers God-glorifying and others-centered? Or would your list be, I want, I need, you should, if only, what would your prayer list look like? Sometimes we, we're like, why, why isn't revival coming to the land? You guys know that prayer meetings are the smallest attended services that churches do. 
we usually get about less than 1% of the people to show up at prayer meetings. But prayer meetings are full when buildings fall. Prayer meetings are full on the eve of elections. And apparently our prayers are, have not been too effective <laughs> in the latest elections. And it's made me ask some questions about, okay, so what do we get urgent about? Uh, you guys saw uh, uh, DeMar Hamlin and what happened in that football game. And that's been wonderfully refreshing, I have to say. I watched the press conference with uh, Coach Sean McDermott of the Buffalo Bills and Josh Allen, their quarterback. And I tell you, I was refreshed. Sean McDermott said, I'm, I'm a Christian man and I'm not ashamed of it. There were people praying and uh, an ESPN newscaster on air bowing his head in prayer. You know, all of a sudden, what, what happened is prayer became in again. And I think it's a good thing that everybody was praying for this young man and God's grace has been on the situation and thankfully he is improving rapidly and that's awesome. And he seems to be a believing young man as well. But there's a bigger picture here, and, that, and it's this. I believe God is exploiting this so that our country might realize that we are founded on Christian values and we need to stop being ashamed of the gospel. Amen? Amen? So, would to God that, you know, this would be a, a nice wake-up call for us as a nation. Well, there's Jesus at the waters of baptism and the heavens open. Oh, that you would open the heavens and come down. Isaiah 64, verse one. You know, Jesus' whole life show, show us, his whole life shows us what God really wants, a heart in love with him, a heart that comes to serve others. The only other time I, I have found uh, the heavens were opened uh, in this exact language is in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1, 1, if you're taking notes reads this way, it came about in the 30th year on the fifth day of the fourth month, uh, Ezekiel says, while I was by the river Kibar among the exiles, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. In Ezekiel 2.2, Ezekiel the prophet will say, and I received the spirit of God. So that's the only other phrase and it's an interesting connection and Ezekiel is called the son of man over and over again in his book. Jesus is the greater son of man. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater David. I think we, we've all learned that. We're studying that in the book of Hebrews. Luke 3.22 puts it this way. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven. Thou art my beloved son. In thee I am well pleased. The heavens open, and God's heart was revealed. This is my son. This is the one I love. And if I can add to that, I'm giving him for you. It is the father that so loved the world that he gave his son. Don't forget that. Jesus was on a rescue mission. And the heavens opened. That same Holy Spirit that descended upon Jesus, it wasn't his first experience with the Holy Spirit. We know it was the Holy Spirit who would overshadow Mary. And the child would be the product of the power of God, namely the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew the Holy Spirit's power prior to his baptism, no doubt. When he's 12, he's going back and forth with the religious leadership and he has great wisdom. This isn't his first experience with the Holy Spirit. So what is happening here? Well, he's being identified by heaven. And heaven is saying, this is the one. It is the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son, and the Herald, John, all bearing witness in, in, in history past that the Messiah is God the Son. Amen. Emphatically. It can't get any more radical with the heavens open and the voice of the Father. That only happens like three times in the Gospels. And one of them is at his baptism. And I hope you can see that all three members of the Trinity are there. The Father speaking from heaven, the Son being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. All three members of the Holy Trinity. Is the Trinity confusing? Yes. Do I fully grasp all its angles? No. Does the Bible teach it? Yes. 
Jesus is not throwing his voice like a ventriloquist up into the heavens. You are, let me turn around for a second. You are my beloved. No, 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 no. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son of the Father. Three in one, one in three, the nature of our God. You say, I don't understand it. Put it up on a chalkboard. Don't show me no Trinitarian triangle. Come on. It's a, it's a bit of a mystery, but let me just say this. Do you know how God spoke the universe into existence? Do you know how God holds it together by the word of his power right now? He's God. If he wants to be three and one and one and three, then that's who he is. And all three members of the Trinity are there. And Jesus would later send that same Holy Spirit upon his church in Acts chapter 2. And there would be tongues of fire and there was a visual manifestation and a sound manifestation and they were empowered. And he said, it's to your advantage that I go away because I'm going to send the helper and he's going to come down like a dove and he's going to be your helper, your counselor. Maybe that's part of what the dove symbol means. He'll be gentle with you, but he'll give you the power that you need and he'll hover over you and come into you and empower you. In the early church, what was the the result of that, it was power and boldness and fruits and love and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen? The same gift of the Holy Spirit comes to us so that we can go out into our wildernesses and face our temptations to have the power of God. That's how good our God is. He gives the gift of the Holy Spirit to us as well. Uh, some seeing what the Father says of the Son here, combinations of Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I will put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 in Luke 4 and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. Amen. The anointing of Jesus at the waters of the Jordan are like the anointing of the kings in the Old Testament. He didn't need the oil. The oil is simply a symbol. This is my king. This is the king I have installed, Psalm chapter 2. Many, many see as, uh, an echo of Psalm 2. This is my king. I've installed him on Mount Zion. He is my beloved son. Do homage to the son because he's the one. Don't fight him. Don't reject him. Let him rule and lead your life. And so what happened at Jesus' baptism, as you see in verse 16, uh, John sees the heavens open. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Some see Genesis 1-2 there, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters at the uh, time of creation. In Christian art, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, often the Holy Spirit is depicted in the form of a dove. That's the symbol of Calvary Chapel. If you've been in Calvary Chapels, it's the dove. And it's the picture of the Holy Spirit. And so this has been captured in Christian art. And, and we don't know specifically why. Why the dove? Does it speak of gentleness? Does it speak of, back to Genesis 1-2? It's a bit of conjecture, but... Mark 1.10 puts it this way. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening or parting or heaven being torn open and the spirit like a dove descending upon Jesus. It includes ideas of identification and anointing. And Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan theologian, president of Magdalen College, Oxford, explains... All apparitions that God at any time made of himself were not so much made to show to men what God in himself is in himself as to show how much he is affected toward us and declare what effects he will work in us. For a dove, you know, is the most meek and the most innocent of all birds without gall, without talons, having no fierceness in it, expressing nothing but love and friendship to its mate in all its carriages and mourning over its mate in all its distresses. And accordingly, a dove was a most fit emblem of the spirit that was poured out upon our Savior when he was just about to enter the work of our salvation. For as sweetly as doves do converse with doves, so may every sinner in Christ converse together. His ministry character was characteristically gentle. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and in me you'll find rest for your souls. He said, the blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. One of the fruits of the Spirit is 
gentleness. He said to be as innocent as doves in Matthew 10, 16. And so the final verse reads this way. Behold, a voice out of the heavens, the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is the opposite of ancient Israel who were obstinate. He always did those things that pleased the Father. This is my Son. I love him. I want to show you one key verse that I think is important for your understanding of this. It's in the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Turn over with me to Acts chapter 10. Peter's in that Gentile house of Cornelius and he gets an opportunity to preach and the Holy Spirit's going to fall upon the listeners of the message. And as Peter begins to tell about Christ, he says these words, Acts 10, 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, Acts 10, 38, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing who all, all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, Acts 10, 38. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And the evidence of that spirit-filled life was that he went around doing good. Back to Matthew and we'll finish it. Someone came up to me after first service and said, I, I don't get the picture. How does Jesus fulfill all righteousness through his baptism? I think it's one part of it. It's one part of that Retracing of the Exodus. It's one part of what Jesus would do. But Jesus will also take the wrath of God at the cross. And this is insightful. And I think this is something to consider. This is from a commentator called France. And he says these words. Baptism symbolizes cleansing. But in Jesus' case, the opposite happened. He began to take on our sin, our dirt, all the scum of all the baptized. Whatever drop of water may have entered his mouth was his first taste of the cup of God's wrath, which he would drink in full measure at the cross. Jesus, the son and the servant, was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, to carry out God's plan of sin substitution. And if and when you and I understand that, we then should understand there's only one response to such a king and such a kingdom. And that response is repentance. As we look at Jesus' holiness and yet his humility, that he would be baptized for us, our posture should be humility and holiness or what could be called repentance since we are naturally neither humble nor holy. We've got to see this for what it is and it's the beginning of Jesus' journey to the cross. It foreshadows the fact that he will die on the cross, go into a tomb and resurrect from the dead. It is a foreshadowing of what he's about to do, a baptism that he will go through at the cross and through the resurrection. It's a picture going from both ends and heaven codifying or uh, saying, yes, this is the picture. This is the son that has come to die that we may live. And right after that baptism, he will go out into the wilderness and face the tempter and overcome him. And every time he will overcome him, the tempter will say, if you're the son of God, and he will say, it is written. The power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the word. We'll talk about this next Sunday, how we deal with temptation. We've got to follow in his footsteps. Because on the other side of the gospel is a life of victory for you. You don't have to wallow in defeat anymore. Your sins have been paid for in full. You now have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Yes, you're going to make mistakes. Yes, we're all imperfect. But now you can have heaven's power to do what you've been called to do. This is the key. So um, I texted my rabbi friend and I had heard a story where a Christian man was sitting with a Jewish friend and he was telling him about this baptism scene and he communicated the words, it's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the, his Jewish friend seemed stunned. And his Jewish friend said, do you know that that's often what is said at the end of a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah ceremony? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. After they do all the readings and the memorizations and stuff. I, my rabbi friend says, it's not the formal 
you know, plan that they follow every time. But he said he's heard that it has been said. And it's kind of stunned a, a Jewish man who was not a believer that that's what the father said of his son. And let me just say to all parents, because this is true of sons and daughters, if we can acknowledge our kids a little bit more publicly and speak blessing into their life, that's what I believe the father's doing. He's affirming Jesus, but he's also blessing him. If we could do a little bit more of that with our loved ones, this is my beloved friend. This is my beloved son or daughter. This is my beloved wife. This is my beloved friend. That, that, that's the stuff of Christian community. And, and that's the stuff that sets us apart from this fractured, broken world. Let everything that we do be done in love. So final story. Yesterday, a uh, uh, few days back, I was at my mama's house and some family members were there. And two Mormon missionaries came to the door. And uh, just so you know, Mormon missionaries are typically 18, 19 years old. They go on a two-year mission. And uh, it's required of them to uh, hopefully one day be exalted as the God of their own planet and to receive worship. This is Mormon theology. And so my family members were there and they knocked on the door and they all thought it was a great plan to sick Pastor Michael on the Mormon missionaries. They're like, oh, glory, Pastor Michael, go, get him, get him. I was like. (laughs) In love. So I was laying on my mom's couch and I was like, nah, I'm off the clock. (laughs) This is not normal business hours, come on. And I knew it was going to be at least a 45-minute conversation. So they went away, and a couple family members left, and I felt some conviction. So I went out there, and they were still around the neighborhood, so I called them to myself, and uh, we began to dialogue. And, and, I, and I began to just ask some questions. I, I tried to be kind and loving, and I just said, hey, can I ask you guys a question? Um, after I found out how long they had been out there, one a year, one a year and a half, they have to do a two-year mission, and... I said, can I ask you a question? What, what would you hope, like if I bought what you were preaching and, and I said yes to whatever you're, you're uh, selling, as it were, what, what would be the outcome for me? And they said, oh, eternal life with your family forever. And I was like, no! No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> My family's on the front row. <laughs> that was bad humor, I know. So I was like, So they talked about eternal marriage. You all know that Jesus said there's no marriage in the afterlife, right? So began to just ask a little bit more questions about them and, and, you know, what they believed and stuff. And it became clear that they didn't know a whole lot. And I've studied their um, founders and stuff. And so as time went by, it became more and more clear that they didn't really know what the Bible was saying. And so I was trying to get this point across, and I I hope you'll hear my heart here. I'm not trying to beat up on anybody. I told them I respect how they make this commitment and and all of that. But I just said, basically, so what you're telling me is that if you do all these things, that you'll get to this exalted state. And I began to talk about how there's only one God, how Joseph Smith taught that there was a savior for every planet, how he demoted God in the King Follett Discourse, how the Bible emphatically says there's one God in three persons, that they're not going to make it no matter how much they do, how many doors they knock on, how long they stay committed to this so-called mission. They will not achieve deity. God has cornered the market on deity. And I want to tell you something. I began to look into the eyes of one of the young men, and I felt kind of a combination of brokenness and compassion for him. Because if he stays in that movement, do you, do you know that man is irredeemably religious, not atheistic? The world's history is littered with false religion and people worshiping all kinds of crazy stuff. There's another Jesus and another gospel. This is what I tried to tell him. You've got to have the right God or you're not saved. You've got to know this Jesus who came on a saving mission and part of what he came to do is live a perfect life that you could never live die on that cross to take God's punishment, raised to defeat our mortal enemy, death itself, and he lives today to intercede for his people. Oh, this is the Jesus you must know. Would you bow? Father, 
Thank you for sending your son. What a deep, profound, beautiful reality that Christ came, came to those waters at the Jordan and said to John, you baptize me. No, Lord, I can't can't do that. No, I've come to fulfill all righteousness. I've come to do what is right. I've come to fill in all the gaps and mend up all the mistakes and cleanse my people's sin. I've come to save. And heaven said, yes, that's him. That's the beloved one. That's the son. Later, the father will say, listen to him. He's the truth. Oh, Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Would you keep your heart bowed if you've not met this Jesus? If this is not the Jesus you know, God the Son, if you maybe haven't known the love of the triune God for you, if you haven't realized that the gospel includes one who lived a perfect life, not just died for you, but was sinless, this is the one. And if you would repent of your sin and trust in him, he will declare you righteous in the sight of the Father. He will impute his righteousness to your account as a gift by faith. Righteousness, if there was a law that God could give to to fulfill righteousness, he would have given it, but the law is a tutor. It drives us to the foot of the cross. It drives us to the Messiah. We need his perfection. We need his righteousness. We need his the, the death of his sacrifice and his triumphant resurrection. We need it all. That's the gospel. Would you ask him into your life? Something like this, Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are and why you came. Thank you for entering into our pain, for becoming one of us, for going to that cross and knowing what you would suffer and what you would endure, for facing off with death and defeating it for living and interceding for your people even today. Oh God, I turn my life over to you. Be my king. Help me to live for things that will last. Maybe you're a, a prodigal and you've been, the world has enraptured you and you, you, you are finding how bankrupt it actually is. Come back home. And Father, for this wonderful congregation, thank you for who they are. Thank you for the beautiful work you're doing In so many lives here, we pray for a fresh infilling of your Holy Spirit, a fresh empowering for the week ahead of us. Help us just to be on mission and to love those around us and do the simple, profound things well for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.